Welcome to season four of the Dynamic Leader podcast. My name is Shelley Flett. I believe that leadership at its core requires strong relationships, the ability to sit in a space of genuine curiosity and the courage to build capability in others. I believe great leaders are lifelong learners. And so my intention is to help you to continue your learning journey by bringing you new perspectives from experts in their field. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Uh, So today's topic is one of the three forbidden topics that uh, when I was growing up was like, you're not allowed to talk about this. Um, So there was religion, um, there was politics, and there was money. And so I don't want to talk about the first two. I want to talk about money. Um, And I'm really excited about this because exploring it from a workplace, leadership, well-being, all of that kind of thing. Um, is a little bit different, but I think we're going to get a lot out of this. Um, And of course, I've invited an expert in the field, um, Jackie Clark, who is a personal wealth and money management expert. She's got over three decades of experience helping high net worth families, individuals and business owners to build, manage and preserve their wealth. So she knows her stuff. She's a trusted advisor. She's a board member and executor and uh, veteran business executive. She's got more than 20 years um, experience working with Deloitte as well. So um, I think we've, we've got some things to learn. Thank you so much for joining us, Jackie. Shelley, it's really great to be here. I'm looking forward to our chat today. So um, straight up, why why is it that we were never allowed to talk about religion, politics and money? Like what was, what was the thing with that? <laughs> I don't even actually, know whether it was a thing for you. <laughs> it was. And I and actually what's really interesting is I grew up in a family that didn't talk about money. And and I think it's a bit of a mistake. And it's becoming increasingly a mistake if you don't talk about money. In fact, I was just on the radio briefly this morning. And I think these days we have to talk about money at home. When you think about cost of living. Uh, you think about things like electricity costs. When I'm ranting about people turning things off in the house, like whether it's heaters or coolers or you name it, appliances, um, you've got to be coming from somewhere. It's the same when you're talking about subscriptions in the house. We have to work out which subscriptions we're all using at the same time so we're not sort of paying for all these things. So actually starting to talk about those things and the cost of them, I think helps build all of our financial literacy you know, like in terms of understanding what things cost in life. Um, but and, yeah, I, I grew up in that generation where you didn't talk about money. And my grandparents certainly didn't talk about money. They saved, but they didn't talk about money per se. And, you know, I think about like I was born in 1980. And so I was in some Your really. Baby. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was, I was like, my childhood was quite impressionable because I was at the stage where I was becoming aware of things um, when we were going through the recession. And I remember, you know, growing up, uh, we were on a dairy farm and it didn't make a great deal of money. And mum and dad, I believe, really struggled. And even now they they sort of talk about how challenging it was. At the time, I noticed a few things. It was like mum would go into, you know, we'd go into a shop and mum would buy something. It would only ever be like the absolute essential items. And she would forward date checks and she would make it really clear you cannot cash this until this date. If you do, it'll bounce. I'll get another fee. So, and she, and so that's how close we were to, you know, that survival kind of thing. And um, it would have been so nice to understand more about that and the thinking, but like 
your parents, mine were very, it was very, you know, you don't talk about that kind of thing. So Mm. you sort of grow up going, I I get the sense that there was some stuff going on there. And when you look more broadly, financial literacy is a huge issue across the globe. Yeah, look, it certainly is. I think also about my time growing up and all of these things influence our own money story. So like why we do the things we do around money, you might be a saver as a result of that, or you might be the complete opposite. You might be a bit of a spender, but I certainly don't remember talking about money at all when I was growing up, but I only remember the time when I was um, probably about 10, when one of my father's customers didn't pay a bill. Like it was a really big bill. And it was the only time I think it ever came home because at that stage, it was probably a large portion of my dad was a builder. It was a large proportion of income for the year. Uh, This guy was sort of escaping his calls and not being where he said he'd be when he was supposed to be there to pay the amount. And I remember feeling that pressure, not not dissimilar to you going in with your mum with the cheque. I actually remember feeling that pressure and it certainly put me on notice at quite, and that was probably at about the age of 10. It put me on notice a little bit that all this sort of lovely or idyllic world we were growing up in, there's actually some things that don't go quite right. And so that was a little bit of my wake up call when I think for the first time, I felt like my mum was being a little more careful when she was doing things like buying meat um, mm. in the groceries. And maybe, you know, I, I know nothing about what the price price of meat was like back in the 80s, but I got a sense that she was making decisions then because a, a large chunk of the revenue, which the family relied upon, actually didn't show up. Yeah. Mm. And so then we go, so there's the home environment. Um, we don't talk about it and maybe we do a little bit more now, but then we've got the workplace and we're not allowed to talk about what we make with other people. And so. Yeah, well, like, we're not allowed to. The amount of people do is extraordinary though, especially so younger people today. Why yeah. are we not allowed to? And this is where I like, I've got no idea, but I know that we're not allowed to talk about it. I just don't know why. Why is it that we're not allowed to talk about what we earn with our peers? Yeah, I, I don't have the answer to that question. And look, I, I, I've i been in senior leadership roles where I've had to sit down and look at a whole group of partners in a firm or all team members and decide how people get paid based on information you get provided by specialist you know, employment or firms. And it is tough. But I do find some networks like graduates are a great example of or a cohort of people that all share what income they earn. I know they hand you over the letter and say, um, you're not supposed to talk to anybody about this. In fact, I think usually the terms say you're not you're not supposed to talk about this, but invariably it comes up. And then the classic one is when people leave your organization and go somewhere else. And what people do is they usually tell you what they're going on. <laughs> so not what they're on here, but what they're going on, which is that sort of one of their reasons, if you like, for moving on is getting a better pay packet somewhere else. That's where I've often seen it talked about. Um, I was in a Deloitte for 20 years. So as a partner there, the income of every partner was actually shared. And so that's really interesting because what did it mm. create? What what did it do to relationships? What did it do to the culture? Was there benefits as well as, you know, effects, like impacts yeah. or... I don't, I don't know that I'd see any benefits at all. Um, perhaps a perceived pecking order when it came to different levels of income. I have no doubt people were competitive about it. Uh, I don't think it brought particularly good behaviours, nor, nor does any sort of end of year performance review process when, you know, talk to the right person 
uh, you might get a better pay rise, that type of thing. Um, I never liked that time of the year at all. I found it always really awkward, especially when you go through the process, like people would um, put time in my diary to catch up with me just to sort of fill me in on what they're up to. So they're managing their own career, which I think is fabulous. Um, but it was really so that, that they were front of mind for me, quite smart strategy when you think about it. So when I'm sitting down to negotiate all of the pay increases, assuming they're all pay increases or no changes, um, that I'd have them front of mind. But I'd never hear from them again <laughs> for, you know, three months or six months, depending on when the next review period was. Anyway. Quite strategic on their part. Mm, mm. Do you think, because um, there are uh, more and more organisations or, or teams are being really transparent about this is what our budget, this is what our actuals are, and sharing the financial side of the business with their leaders and leaders with their team actually gives this greater sense of I understand what's going on I understand some of the decisions that are being made so you can see that being transparent or to a point with financial figures at a business level is helpful I wonder whether we we could explore whether it would be worth exploring what would happen if that happened at a individual level like Mm. I don't know I'm just sort of thinking you know yeah, I mean, I look at it another way. I know people who work in government roles, you know, and where they're all at a particular level. And sadly, like any, well, you know, almost across Australia, you will know if somebody's a particular level in government, they're paid a certain amount of money. Um, I'm just, I'm not sure how helpful it is necessarily. Do your expectations shift if people are paid more money? Well, as a boss, I used to expect more when people Mm. were paid more um, or the higher up the ranks they were, you'd expect more from them. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's something that is worthwhile considering. Having come from an environment of complete transparency at at a partnership level, uh, it's quite different to then looking at rank, you know, across a group in your your business. But certainly salary bands is something I'm really familiar with as well. So, of course, having people in particular bands and where they fit within the band um, mm. is a good conversation to have. I, I guess, guess there's aspirational too, Shelley. Like you think yeah. about um, if you're moving your way through an organisation, there's aspirational income. And so it is good to have that information provided to you so you can say, well, that's kind of where I want to be in a period or what's achievable for me in a period of time, which mm. is something I, I know I looked at earlier on in my career. You know, how do I get to that spot? Mm. Mm. So you talk, um, you talk about, you know, that um, what's your money story, Mm. what is that about and why is that important for our listeners? Uh, Look, uh, the the main thing for me is that if your money story is a bit jagged and if you've made some mistakes around money, that you can turn it around. So I think just because your money, say your parents um, were savers or they were spenders, You don't need to fall into the same trap. If you're a family that lived on credit, you don't need to be, you don't need to create the next generation of those living on credit. Um, Living beyond your means or within your means, uh, there's a lot of living beyond, actually there's a lot of people living beyond their means today and Mm. it's getting really tough because as things like interest rates and rent increases, that's getting uh, more difficult and forcing people in positions that they may be uncomfortable with or certainly put them in an even worse position where they might have to sell their home mm. um, or worse. So I think that your money story influences obviously the background where we've come from and having in, you and I sound similar, we've had the saving background. That doesn't mean that we necessarily are going to be that. But the most important thing is that you can turn it around. And I've seen people 
you know, sort of a lifetime of money mistakes. And it could be anything. It could be gambling. It could be, um, you know, I talk about one of the main money mistakes is the wearing and driving your money, <laughs> which is so many people are so focused on sort of what they wear, always having the latest thing, might be lace handbag, whatever it is, or with cars, having the latest vehicle or a flashy vehicle, whatever, you know, floats your boat. Um, it's almost there's a point where you can actually turn that around you can change it um and and sorry I was sort of thinking about a story where someone who I've known for most of their life had that lifestyle and saw the sale online for a trip to uh, Fiji or Bali and thought well we'll take that you know the money's not necessarily sitting in a bank but there's a bargain on a holiday we're going to take that and they spend their money on clothes when they wanted something they'll you know that sort of incidental shopping and before you know it, they're living on credit and they want to buy a new lounge at home. So they do a buy now, pay later scheme, um, which are everywhere essentially these days. And then, you know, life goes on five years, 10 years down the track. Your mortgage may not have changed. It's still the same. You've been paying interest only on your mortgage. All sorts of things um, can happen. But then um, this person who I know sort of realized that, in fact, they were reading an article in, I think it was The Australian, and about the homelessness of women in their sort of 60s, 70s. And it's a really serious issue in Australia. And, and this person had a, a real aha moment, which is like, oh, shit, can I say that on the podcast? Yeah. Um, if, I, if I don't do something, I'm going to be one of those people. So she actually made a decision to like stop the spending and live to a budget um, and then actually went down the process of, buying an investment property um but all of this came through savings but having to make a decision that notwithstanding a money story where she had actually grown up with a family who generally spent all their money she'd continue that on that she had to turn it around herself and she could and i think that's out there for anyone we've got to talk about it though oh you do <laughs> you have to own it so who who do you talk um who do you share your money story with like is that something that you can talk to a leader about in the workplace if particularly if it's something like actually I'm not sleeping now and um I, I'm really worried about stuff at home um are we allowed to go there well you know financial well-being plays such a significant role in our overall well-being yeah and you ask the question, and I think the answer is, well, we should be talking about it because if I have a mental health issue or if I have broken my leg or if I have uh, financial distress at home, um, these are all going to weigh fairly heavily on your mind and really influence your productivity in your job. So I think the reality is we should have financial counselling like we have other counselling there's no question about that. And in fact, I do I actually do financially counsel senior executives now to help them actually own their money issues or money story and help um, bed down the anxiety that probably comes from the spending too much or because you earn it, you spend it, which mm. is kind of okay, right? Mm. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, it's an interesting challenge, but I do think it's worthwhile opening up about it. Because we talk about, you know, what what we know is that the more we've started to talk about mental health and, you know, the challenges that are um, that are faced from a 
psychological like well-being perspective mm. the more we talk about it the more that people feel comfortable to talk about it the more that people can share what's going on with you and the better they feel you know problem shares problem halved that kind of thing mm. is that you know can we I wonder if it's worth creating environments where it's like, well, let me talk, let me share with you my story about money and the relationship I have to it and what that actually does to my, you know, I think as a leader, that would be really handy to to know. Um, can I come to terms with what my story is and what my relationship is? And then can I actually share that with my people and create the space that if they do need to talk about it or they're having some struggles around that area, that, I can then connect them into some support services or or ask them whether they're doing anything about it. And, you know, it's that once we start talking about it, it becomes, we start to desensitize the stigma around it. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And look, I think that's the case. You think, I think back to 20 years ago, you couldn't talk about depression or anxiety in the workplace at all. Uh, I had my first husband suffered really badly from depression and anxiety. And yeah, it was really hard to talk about. Um, and in fact, I, I was kind of lucky, I guess, had a great CEO who was a real listener and I could say to him, there's a, there's a problem in my family. Um, and it's really difficult for me right now. And people just know that you're distracted. And usually the funny thing about this is if you tell someone that we've got, we've got some problems, they, the penny drops usually because you'll find that you've left it late to tell them anyway. And um, they probably thought something's going on with Jackie, you know, or Shelley. There's something not going on with her. And then when you say to them, oh, well, this is happening, they're like, uh-huh, how can I help this person or provide them with more support? And, yeah, sure, it might be as simple as saying, you need to be talk to your accountant, have you talked to your family about these things, you know, um, or refer them out to a financial advisor or a bank. It doesn't matter, but somebody that can give them some advice. Because, you know, chapter one of the book actually is, is the starting point, which is really just getting your house in order around mm. money. And I think that that can ease a lot of worry or anxiety around financial issues because um, obviously the number one mistake people are making is that they put their head in the sand. And that's the same thing with talking about it, which is, yeah. oh, my God, this is pretty bad. I don't need to. Or actually some people just don't even see it as bad because they won't even go there <laughs> like they want to avoid it altogether yeah. um but i think if you sort of own that part and that's this turnaround piece is actually understanding what it costs to open the front door at your home which mm. few people know is a really important step to sort of getting on the right track i love the i love the concept of own it as well like it's the how how much um control do you feel like you have over that stuff so you know i've got uh, background in banking and um, yes I saw the, that actually yeah <laughs> worked in uh the, the collections hardship end um oh wow for a period of time yeah. and I, you know I started in credit cards and I was in credit cards when things were really really it was fun there was a lot of money being spent on like it was when it was <laughs> like this credit boom everyone was just like just put it on credit and worry credit. about it mm-hmm. um <laughs> and so there was a lot of <clears throat> money coming in and then you know um Eight years later, I end up working in collections and fraud and you can kind of see like the, oh, I can understand the path that people get to um, when they sort of, you know, lose control of that thing. But one of the things that really saddened me at the time and still concerns me is people's reluctance to take responsibility and say, but you gave it to me and therefore it's your, if you said that I could have this, ah, yes. then 
I must be okay. Like I must be able to have this. And if I can't, then that's your fault. Yes. And so that's a a really great point because I think today, particularly about mortgage stress, so similar context now is that when the banks loaned money during the pandemic, they um, stress tested to a certain percentage, but we're now exceeding that stress test. Yeah. Yeah. So the reality is that people are sitting there saying, well, the bank thought we could do this, but the thing that hasn't happened is people haven't said, oh, to keep paying this, I've actually now got to cut down these costs at home. Yeah. So you've really got to look inside and own those costs. They're the bit that if you've signed up for the mortgage, you've now got to come back and cut costs at home. Yeah. And, and often there's um, a way of doing that. So you talk about um, expense creep and I mm. am sort of selfishly interested in that because I think I might have a little bit of that. But <laughs> can yes. you share a bit about that? Yeah, look, this is income and expense creep. It's um, a global phenomenon really, but essentially the more you earn, the more you spend. Yeah, and the more you spend, the more you want and I could go on, right? Um, so the challenge is not to suffer from expense creep. So the reality is when you create what your baseline of costs is in your family, ideally they don't need to go up. So the classic thing that happens is uh, people get a pay rise and they have already spent the pay rise. Yeah. On before, they've, before they've actually got before it. it. You know that it's coming. So that gets allocated to the new TV or the holiday. Uh, so that's something you've got to really watch out for. Um, the other one is spending the tax refund. Mm. Another one, people bank, the amount of people that tell me, I can't wait for my tax refund because of blah. But it's not because they're paying a bill. It's actually because they're going to spend it on something, almost like a reward um, for waiting for the tax refund. I don't know. They're going to spend it. So these are all those, I guess, little expense creep traps. But actually, it's also sort of working out for you, what do you really what do you really need? It's the need versus wants analysis, hard one, right? Um, because maybe the other question is in the absence of a goal, a financial goal, you will continue to suffer from expense creep. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So talk to us about goals. Like how do we how do we create goals around money? And should it be around money or what is or what money will represent to us in mm. the form? like like how do we approach that? Yeah, look, to me, it's the latter. I think make it whatever you want it to be. Some people need a goal that's around a financial amount that says, um, I've got um, young adult kids, so their goal will be saving to spend time overseas, for example. Um, That's a bit different, though, I think, for me. I look, I have a bit of a five-year horizon running all the time. So I'm looking out at a five-year goal that is not necessarily a financial goal, but embedded in getting to that goal is financial aspects. Yeah. So for example, um, years ago when I was contemplating um, transitioning from my executive career um, where I, I was earning really great income, I wanted to make sure that I had secured the future private school fees that we were paying for our sons. And so for me, I was making a decision then about my expenses where I was actually putting money aside to literally set school fees aside. So my goal was actually to be able to leave an executive career where my um, school kids' education was covered. 
that was my goal. So the goal was to leave knowing. So that was a financial goal, to be fair. Um, whereas now it's it's somewhat different for me. It's about uh, the greater flexibility in the work that I do. So it's much more of a lifestyle piece for me today. And it will be about future um, periods in my life where I might have two months or three months overseas or a particular type of holiday where you do need to set cash aside essentially to be able to fund that. And then the other thing is just investing. So you can't just decide, you just can't wake up one day and decide that you're going to buy an investment property or buy some shares. Uh, so the other thing is you need to have a goal around getting to that point. You know, I, I don't, I read recently, you know, what the average period of time it is for people to save for a deposit on a house, right? It's, it's, it's enormous if you're 20 years of age and you're looking to save for a house. So these things, these are really serious. So the goal is a house. But it's really embedded the financial goal is I've got to save the hell out of my income now to get to that goal, to get that deposit together. And mm. I think that could be something that you could share with your leader um, in terms of yeah. like motivators yeah. and things and yes. what it is that's driving the behaviour. Because I think um, if I if I don't have a goal, then do I really need to earn it? And does it really matter? And do mm. I need to go to work this morning? You know, it can be quite compounding. But on the flip side, and I think like if I think about my own career is I got a taste of money. I, you know, I started working in a factory when I left school and it was like, you were on penalty rates. You're doing some crazy hours and really boring work, but you were getting a lot of money for the age I was at the time. And so you get this taste of like, oh, that's good to earn that. And then yes. it's strive for how much can I earn and what can I then buy and how much, like, what are my limits? And then at, at some point in my late thirties, I was like, um, I've burnt myself out mm. and I really needed to, I really needed to adjust my financial goals. So I was striving for money I didn't need. Wow. So I see that it's probably really typical around that 30 year old and being a little bit generalist that's so I think it's a great thing I used to love hearing again as a boss when a younger staff member came to me and said oh I'm going to bid at a house on the weekend because I think as the boss when somebody's got a mortgage you think fantastic they're going to want to work here for the rest of their life um, which is obviously not the case but you feel <laughs> like that's great but it is it can um, anchor people in positively around a goal um there's obviously a, a negative side to it as well but, but i do think that it's quite helpful um to, to look at it that way yeah and yeah. I, and it wasn't until someone said to me well how much do you actually need to earn mm. to 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 have the lifestyle you want what do you actually need to earn and i was like i don't know i'm just going to keep keep mm. you know aiming for more and more and more and more but it was at my you know when we talk about um mental and physical well-being it was at the detriment of that yeah and that's really so sad because I think the other thing Shelley is when you come out of um, school and then say you go to university and then you go into the workforce if you work like a complete dog um, and you what happens is your network in the workforce can be building but friends and family start to drop by the wayside so your relationships suffer and I think then for you personally it starts with personal relationships suffer, uh, then, you know, you've done all the right things. You've got your place. You, you might be single because you haven't even, you wouldn't dare spend, you know, enter into a relationship because you're so focused on your financial goal of getting a place or whatever that you've just missed the missed it completely. Mm -hmm. I, I met up with a friend recently who's probably 
early 30s and um, I said to her, you know, you do need to work this hard, actually, was the question. And um, this is someone who's now sitting here at 50, whatever, saying you don't have to work. Like I I was one of those people, always worked like a dog, but had a big family to support as well. Um, So I felt like it was justified, but there's a lot of things that I've learned in the last couple of years that I missed completely because I was just so focused on, um, you know, they were corporate goals more than anything, but they had financial goals attached to them. Mm. And I love, I love the idea of having like a five-year financial goal as opposed to, and even, you know, within that having 12-month ones, et cetera, um, rather than having this like, well, what's my goal when I retire? And I also, like, I also have a, I have got a financial advisor, so I, I know what my retirement's going to look like and I am planning for that now and all of that. You are, you are really going to retire, Shelley? Uh, no, I'm not, but no. <laughs> I I am expecting not. Yeah, that's interesting because when you see when you see a financial um, advisor, they're like, "Well, what's your anticipated retirement age?" And I said, I'm, "I don't ever plan it." And they're like, "Well, how about you just put a number in and then aim towards that and plan for that, and then it, you don't have to, but at least you've got choice." And so I like the idea of choice. Um, and then you know within that, it's like, "We'll pay my mortgage off within a certain period of time." But what I like is the the smaller, the shorter term financial goals can be the, can sit really nicely alongside my life goals. Like what, what do you want to achieve? How do you want to be living? What's your ideal world? And then, and then putting them together to go, is this actually realistic and and what do I need to change? And what can I like for those that do work hard and strive and strive for more is to go, well, what is my, I talk to people about that upper and lower limit. Like what's Mm. your, what's your income limit and particularly yeah. for people wanting to go I want to make a change into a different industry yes because we're seeing a lot of that um yes post pandemic um is people like I don't even think I like doing what I'm doing but can I afford to make the shift and help and I think those goals are really helpful to help people make those decisions aren't they oh look 100 percent. I'm listening to you saying that and thinking how uh how the money side of this is so critical Again, even though you can talk about goals and where you want to work and how you want to work and when you want to retire, we're not actually tying them back to money. But what's underpinning all these choices is how you're spending your money today, right? Um, But people aren't talking about that so much. They'll be talking about um, getting the promotion, uh, upgrading the house or or downsizing, whatever it might be, moving to a regional area from a city area, uh, opening my own business after being in a corporate, all those types of things. But they're not actually necessarily talking about what's the baseline cost of living that I need what does survival look like it's a good it's a good place to start strip it back and work from there one of the things um, I used to do early on in my career was I helped people transition from corporate roles into running their own businesses and apart from warning them about the uh, administrative aspects of running your own business um, the the most important thing was also explaining you know that income doesn't necessarily come in those neat little um, monthly distributions into your bank account that have already had the tax paid on them you you earn money that's gross um, you need to set money aside for tax and it's the classic thing why businesses bust because of poor cash flow management is probably the number one reason simply because as people start out they don't actually set the tax aside 
Mm. And, and um, you know, in on the flip side of that, you've got people who are really conscious and aware and concerned about that so much so, and they've seen so many people fail at it that they don't even want to try. But actually it's like, well, it's not that hard to sit down and work out what your finances look like and what you will need and then just be aware of that yes. ongoing. So sometimes yeah. it prevents those that could succeed from entering but it doesn't those that. No, no, that's that's right. Actually, that's a really good way to kick to kick it off. I think it with a little bit of planning, like all good things, you can. People do get caught up in the business idea, the business strategy, what we're going to do, how we're going to make money. But the actual thing is to kind of look inside yourself, do the analysis of what you're currently spending, so you kind of know what you need to survive. That was what I was doing when I was contemplating uh, leaving the partnership of Deloitte. Was what do I need? to survive and what's the period of time where I'm comfortable doing you know a nothing or be something um, once I do end this relationship this yeah. work yeah yeah which is what it felt like <laughs> <laughs> so um it's it's already so um it's already a challenge to have these conversations because we don't talk about it and we're not really and then it requires us to kind of turn the spotlight on some things that we might not be that proud of or things that might be worrying us. And so you've got this um, resistance already up front. And then on the other side of that, you have, um, and I've been reading a few books around, um, I read Stroll and Focus and oh, yes, I'm <laughs> currently kind of most of the way through Dopamine Nation. And the on the, on the other side of this hesitation to want to look at our finance, we have technology that is feeding this overconsumption environment <laughs> they look like they're winning mm, they do but how long will it is it sustainable is the question Shelley we're yeah. going to need to fall flat on our face in order to pick up and go they they won at my expense mm. and I'm hurting like it's that it's hard. Like even myself, I'm like, oh, sale. Um, <laughs> do I need that? Nah, but- and, and and I think some people are incredibly disciplined about this. That when they feel like they're getting too much of it, and I've I've got a 24 year old son who is literally turned off for a period of time, not permanently, but just turned off his Instagram account or Facebook, whatever it might be, just to not have the constant, because I'm the same, I'm a real sucker for it. But I think until you make a decision that you're not going to spend that money, even as good as that deal might be, it's the sort of putting it through the filter. But if you've got that goal, I think if you've got that, it's like the, what's your North Star in life, in business, what's your North Star financial goal? If you keep, if you've got that set, it just keeps you on course. Isn't that the reality? Like like with anything, um, if you don't make a plan, if you certainly fail, you you will um, not get anywhere. You, you actually need a plan. I think it's very similar with financial goals. And like, I agree with you, the constant barrage of stuff coming at us uh, is really challenging. And, but mm. if you have a goal, I think it's the filter and you say, yep, no, 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 no. Um, I've had people this month talking to me about what am I wearing at a book launch? <laughs> and I said, well, hopefully something from my wardrobe, you know, because it's I like, do I really need to go and spend, I've got fabulous clothes. Do I really need to go and spend more money just to have something new on? Probably not. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> yeah. It's the, the, the problem, I mean, part of the challenge is that it's um, now one to two clicks away that is really quick 
that the decision, like you, you don't even get to go, is this something that I really want? Cause it's like, it's that instantaneous. And so um, there is this element of like your 24 year old son is just switching yeah. it off. So it's not there in the first place. Yeah. So the other thing, this is again, I do talk about financial infidelity in the book. And the reason why I just raise that now is that when people uh, are, people hide their consumer behaviors. So a lot of people just click. We all do. It's not like you click and then your partner comes home and you confess that you clicked through on something and you bought um, well, anything, a new set of headphones. Um, so, and obviously in relationships, financial infidelity can be a real problem, but actually some of the difficulty around not having clear clear financial goals is that you spend money, you sort of try and keep it secret, but who are you really keeping it a secret from? Yeah. But if you uh, have done what I've done a few times now is I've put something in the cart. So I've done the one click and then my husband will come home and I'll say, I was thinking about this today. And he'll say, do you really, do we, where is it going or where are you going to wear that? Or um, what's that for? Haven't you got, so that's actually right back to the, think back to the start of this chat today is just opening up a little bit about that. I'll do it with my kids as well. Sort of anyone who's around, I was thinking about this. It's not like I'm showing them. It could be anything. It could be a drink bottle. It could be a set Mm. of cutlery, (laughs) set of steak knives. Um, But actually showing someone else just gives you that pause. Yes. Just a moment of pause where you can actually say, do we really need it? We. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. And I think um, because I've been worried about my my children. Like yesterday, my 11-year-old said, um, can I buy this? And I said, you don't. With what money? And he goes, credit. I was like, oh, my God, you did not just say that. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, yeah. you know that credit is not yours. And then, you know, oh. explain that. And he's like, oh. Mm. Um, and then I was thinking, gosh, how do I, how have I created this and then what do I do about it? But I think that's really helpful talking to about um, sharing expenses. So if I start to share with my kids, this is what I'm thinking, what do you think? And just bringing the conversation alive at home, like starting there and then, and then seeing what happens. I actually am really excited, excited about that. Yeah, look, I think with kids in particular, uh, it's something to be really mindful of because it's so easy now. You know, when I was, <laughs> not when I was younger, but a little while ago, my mom used to make jokes that she would go to the man in the wall, which is where she'd put the card in and get cash out, right? Man. <laughs> now, it's we don't get cash out anymore, but it used to be the man in the wall. And why it was a man, I don't know. But anyway, we'll leave that one aside. Um, but now all we do as parents is tap. Yeah. So I think that the conversation that you're having with your son, which is awesome, is that you've got um, this opportunity to acknowledge that the tapping exercise is coming from you doing a particular piece of work. So Mm -hmm. kind of activity mum over here means money in the bank here means then there's money on the tap because the tap doesn't just magically have money on it. Um, yeah. but like that, if you think of little kids, like that's quite a phenomenon. You take them to the grocery store, you walk out, you tap, that's all this. That's all kids today mm. are seeing. Are you still yeah. there, Shelley? Yes. Sorry. I am. <laughs> Ask me how that happened. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a real challenge. That's all kids are seeing today is yeah. essentially this, um, tap and go. 
Um, so how do we teach them? We actually have to take them through a supermarket. We have to show them the product on the shelf, the price of the product. We have to take them to the checkout. We have to show them the card, which we've had the story before about mum doing the work. Mm. And then we're showing them that that's on this card and then we're paying for it. And then the kids have seen you make a decision about price of an item mm. and they've seen, they know the story about the work and then they know the story about how the thing gets paid. Love that. It's great. And even having those like individual financial goals within your family and then sharing those and working towards it. I've just got really excited about the dinner conversation that I'm going to have tonight. Yeah, I think with the kids too, when they're um, too young to have a job today, but what's a financial goal that you can work towards with them? They don't have to be earning it, but you can certainly, like I talk about matching principles and all sorts of things, which is where you've got younger Mm -hmm. kids or kids who start taking a job and say, if you get a job and you earn X dollars and you want to buy, I always use Xbox as an example, but I will help you. I'll Mm -hmm. help you get there. I'll help you buy the game or the subscription after that if you do X. Um, It's just another way of identifying financial goals with kids so that the money doesn't burn a hole in there pocket which it does with kids kids get money and they're like like cash which you know when my kids they still had cash they they would have to go up the street to spend it straight away and then there was no sort of putting it aside for you know buying a bunny or whatever Mm. you know but that's actually a really good conversation to have you kind of you might learn through that process yourself because having the conversation about money with kids is a whole lot easier when they're younger than it is when they become teenagers or adults young adults yeah, and and I think it also shines a light on how your relationship with it. And so, is that does that sort of um, tie into building a trusted personal finance village that you talk about? So, when I talk about that, it's really around having people around you that can help you make sound financial decisions mm-hmm. that are a trusted sounding board for you. So um, probably with big, more relevant with bigger decisions, but even with your kids, you're developing a relationship where you're letting them know that they can come to you to talk about these things. Yeah. For me, building a personal finance village is around helping people that take a fair bit of the emotion out of the things that you're talking about. So you mentioned your financial advisor, that would be somebody that would be typically in a financial in your personal finance village, like an accountant, I would be a typical trusted advisor in a personal financial village. So it could be a sister or a brother-in-law. It might not be your spouse because they could be really terrible with money as well. Um, But having somebody that, or a group of people that you can say, whether it be an investment, and it's not about finding what's the latest stock pick because that's a really poor use of a personal finance village, but somebody who, a, a group of people that you can use really as a sounding board essentially to say, does this make sense? Is this a good idea for us, for our family that will give you an impartial perspective as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, I think it's absolutely critical and it's not going to be the person that the, the guy that you work with uh, at all. I'm not talking about using your boss as somebody in your personal finance village, but they can be a network of people that can give you um, guidance or support. Yeah. But I do think you need to look for people to have in your personal finance village that you know have the skills and capability to give you the right support. It's such a great point. And, you know, I think I've been more open to that um, over the past sort of five to 10 years. And Mm. what's interesting is the more you start to talk about these things, the more you learn that like, oh, I didn't know about that. And, ah, how does that work? And really Mm. I thought this, but that's actually not the case. Um, And it's a safe place too, Shelley. Like I think 
if money is an uncomfortable topic, but you've identified people that you can talk to money about, you start to, I think you learn more and you open up more as time yep. goes by. It feels It's just like if you have the conversation with the boss at work or wherever it might be, you also mm. will feel more comfortable about having those conversations down the track with others yep. in the future. Absolutely. I love that. And I do wonder if like, if my boss is in my um, personal finance village and we talk about what's going on and what I need, that it makes the remuneration conversation at the end of the year a little bit easier because that can be a little bit tricky to navigate around, you know, how does that align with what I want and, you know, all of those kind of things that perhaps having those little conversations throughout the year then helps with the the big conversation. Yeah. And just think about that too. If you don't appear to pay any attention to money, mm. then they will bank that in their little mind about you when it comes to pay rises. But if yeah. they know you're focused on pay rises and remuneration, I can guarantee you you'll have a better conversation. I love that. Mm. <laughs> That's <Yes>. so good. <laughs> uh, you know, that might be the one reason people start to talk about it with their um Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jackie, it has been such an awesome conversation with you. Um, who knew we could have such fun talking about such a, um, <laughs> an icky topic? But thank you so much for sharing and, and really appreciate the conversation today. That's been a real pleasure, Shelley. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And um, anyone who wants to um, connect with Jackie, I'll put in the links, but she's also got a book called Stop Worrying About Money and Start Planning Now to Secure Your Financial Future. It's a really um, practical, easy to read book um, and it makes it just makes so much sense. So I'll put a link to grabbing a copy of that as well. Um, but thank you everybody for listening. I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation with you soon. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.